Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, that's kind of, kind of the point, I'd like to have you take it out and turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, if you're new to the Bible, pretty easy to find. It's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3, we're going to be looking today at Matthew's telling of Jesus' baptism down on the Jordan River. Now, if you've never heard this story before, you may find this to be an intriguing idea, that Jesus himself was baptized. It's kind of interesting to think about. But even if you have all of the Bible stories memorized, I mean, going all the way back to Sunday school and flannel graph lessons, still, I want you to slow down and think about it again this morning. Not just that it happened, but I want you to think about why it's so important that it happened. Why does this story matter? personally, for you. If you've never been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that before we're done today, I'm going to challenge you to take that step and be baptized as a believer. And if you have never put your faith in Jesus before, I'm going to encourage you to do that today. Knowing that there is absolutely nothing, nothing in you or in anything that you've ever done that stands between you and Jesus. I want you to understand why it matters for you that Jesus of Nazareth was baptized down on the Jordan River. Now let me begin up at the top of the chapter, Matthew chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, but follow along in your own Bible. Here's what it says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, yum, and yuck. People went out from all around Jerusalem and Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So the story begins with John the Baptist, this fiery, dramatic, eccentric wildly popular preacher who'd begun holding revival services outside of Jerusalem down along the Jordan River. And and the people were flocking from miles around to come and to listen to him preach out in the wilderness. And so John preached, and he told the people to get right, and he told the people to get ready for the coming of the Messiah. And with that, he was baptizing the people that they might demonstrate their spiritual readiness For the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are two significant words used to describe the people as they came for baptism. The first word is confessing. In verse 6, it says, as they were confessing their sins, they were baptized by John 
in the Jordan River. Now, now that word, confessing, it simply means to openly acknowledge something, to freely admit it. I have sinned, and that sin was wrong. I'm accepting responsibility for what I've done. I've done things that have offended a holy God. I have done things that has caused harm to other people, and I'm ready to call it what it is. It's called sin. That's confessing. The second really important word is repenting. Down in verse 11, John said that he was baptizing them for repentance. Now, the basic idea of repentance means turning around. So the idea is this, that that I have been living my life, running my own way, doing my own thing with my back to God, but I'm willing to confess that. That is openly acknowledge that I've been living in ways and believing in ways that are wrong. But not only am I willing to acknowledge that, but I'm willing to turn around, do a 180, a brand new direction of life back to God and his ways. And that's what the people were doing in the Jordan River. This was a public faith moment for them, confessing their sins and turning back to God again. And I have to say that for someone like me, this is something that I can relate to as someone who is prone to wander, as someone who knows what it is to run in the wrong direction. I can understand what this is all about because confession is something that I need. Repentance is something that I need. And I think if you're honest, it's probably something that you need to. So the people are flocking out to the Jordan River where John is calling them to get ready and to get right. And then, surprise of surprises, plot twist, verse 13 says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now, what was that all about? Now, I can understand why Jesus might want to come down and watch the Riverside Revival. Watch what was happening, lend his support, perhaps encourage the people who were there. But what was Jesus doing there? It says he was getting baptized too. What's that all about? Sometimes, you know, someone really unexpected comes forward for an invitation. Someone so unexpected, it can almost be for the rest of the people awkward. When I pastored in Norman, Oklahoma, our historic church once had had a legendary pastor. His name was E.F. Halleck, but everyone just called him preacher. And though he had been gone for 30 years by the time I got there, when people talked about preacher, they were only talking about one person. The rest of us who came after him, we were all pastor, but there will always only be one man in that church who was known affectionately to the people as preacher. Preacher Halleck was a great man of God. He pastored our church for 46 years, and he famously taught people who went all around the world about prayer and God's promises. But before he came to Oklahoma, he had pastored in another church. And as a pastor of that church, he had invited an evangelist by the name of T.T. Martin to come and to preach a series of messages to the people, and T.T. Martin came. And night after night, he preached the gospel. And as the meetings went on, Preacher Halleck came to the uncomfortable realization that despite all of his theological education, in fact, he had never personally actually been saved. And so Preacher wrestled with the Lord. He knew that he needed to receive Christ and make a public proclamation of that decision. But what would the people think? People will think I've lost my mind, he said. I will lose my job, he worried. 
But so it was on the final night, even before the invitation was given, that preacher Halleck walked the aisle in his own church and professed to the congregation, I have just received Jesus as my Savior. Preacher Halleck came forward and got saved in his own church. It's happened before. Sometimes someone really unexpected will come forward, so much so, it actually can be a little bit awkward. It was definitely like that the day Jesus stepped forward to get baptized. What in the world is he doing coming out here? In fact, the very first person who found it to be awkward was a person who did it, John the Baptist. Verse 14, it says, John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. Now, remember, Jesus and John were relatives. I don't know if they were cousins or they were second cousins or, you know, how that worked. We don't know if they were close or if they only saw each other at family reunions, but the point is, they knew each other. And John had an understanding of how important Jesus was and the role that he was going to play in bringing about the redemption of Israel. So John's cousin, Jesus, comes down to the Riverside Revival, but instead of taking over, Jesus wades out into the water along with the others and says, I'm here to get baptized too. And immediately, of course, this does not sit right with John, so much so that he tries to prevent Jesus In fact, when it says in verse 14 that John tried to deter Jesus, the verb tense is that he continued to try to prevent him from doing this. So apparently there is this back and forth, this tug of war going on with John and Jesus out there in the water. Jesus insisting to go through with this and John trying to prevent him. He's saying, this doesn't make any sense. As far as the pecking order goes, the hierarchy goes, you ought to be baptizing me, not the other way around. But eventually it says, Jesus won out. In verse 15, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. By the way, literally it means John dropped it. He let it go. I don't totally get this. But Jesus says this is the right thing to do, so this is what we're going to do. Verse 16 says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Instantaneously, with the baptism of Jesus, the heavens were opened, and with both picture and sound, it becomes clear that God was speaking again. Now, I know to us that may not seem like that big of a deal, because when we read the Bible, it seems like God is speaking all the time. With every page, God is saying something. I mean... A voice is speaking out of the heavens, turn the page. A voice is calling out of the burning bush, turn a page. An angel brings a message, turn a mess, turn the page. The prophet brings some kind of a word to us. It feels like God is speaking all the time. But the time they were living in was not one of those times. In fact, they were living at the very end of a 400-year period that we sometimes call the silent year. Now think about that. It has been four long centuries since the last prophet has spoken. It has been four long centuries 
since the last word of Scripture was written. They were living in a time when visions were rare, living in a time when revelations were few, where in the words of the prophet Amos, there was a famine on the land. But it was not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the word of the Lord. These were people who had been waiting for 400 long years to hear a word again from heaven. Have you ever been waiting to hear something from somebody? And as time dragged on, it turned from eagerness to anxiousness. You met a really nice guy. And he asked if he could have your number. But now it's been four days and you haven't heard anything. And you wonder, did he lose my number? Maybe I should get his number and I should contact him, but I don't want to be overeager. Why haven't I heard from him yet? You interviewed for a new job and it felt like it went well and you're dying to hear back from them. Now, every time there's a notification on your phone, you jump to see if it is some word from them. But maybe no news is good news, right? Or maybe they're so disinterested, they're not even going to bother to reject me. Why? Why does it take so long to hear back? The doctor said the results should be back early in the week. But now it's Wednesday morning and you still haven't heard anything. Why doesn't somebody call me? And the longer you wait, the more it seems like all you're doing is watching the tickets, the seconds tick off the clock. It's 9.15 now. They're probably just opening up the office. But if 10 o'clock gets here, I'm calling. I'm so anxious to hear Something. Sometimes we get so desperate to hear something, we'd almost rather hear something bad than hear nothing at all because the silence is killing us. This is what it felt like for the people of Israel. It has been 400 long, aching, silent years, and they are so desperate to hear something. They are so famished. For a word from the Lord. So when this young carpenter steps out of Galilee and the skies are open and a voice thunders, it is an incredible sign that after 400 long years, God is speaking again. But for Matthew's Jewish readers, which is especially what Matthew is focusing on, they would have immediately recognized that it wasn't just that God was speaking again, but he was speaking in a way that unmistakably proved that their collective prayers had been heard. How so? What happened beginning that day on the banks of the Jordan River is precisely what the prophet Isaiah had prayed for. Centuries before, on behalf of a broken and a bruised people, desperate to hear from God. Isaiah chapter 63, he cried out, Father, look down from heaven and see us. Look down from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where is your passion and might? Where is your tenderness and compassion? Surely you are still our Father. And then the prophet concludes, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. For 400 long years, this has been the collective heart cry of God's people. We can't stand the silence anymore. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens, and break through. It's like the beginning of a football game. And the crowd is cheering and stomping, and the band is playing, and they are waiting anxiously for the home team to take to the field. And then finally, at the far end of the stadium, out of the tunnel, they come tearing through this 
paper banner. And it's not just that they appear, but it's suddenly and dramatically, emphatically, unmistakably, they tear through that veil with authority and they take the field that they have come to possess. Oh, that you would do that, Lord. That you would tear open the heavens dramatically, emphatically, unmistakably, that you would come down because it has been so long that we've been waiting. And as Matthew tells the story, this is the imagery that he's calling on, and he leaves no doubt. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that very moment, heaven itself was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven thundered out and said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. 400 years of prayers answered. Before their very eyes, the heavens are opened again, a voice is heard again, and God himself has come down. 400 years. That's significant. This is not the the first time that God's people have had to wait for 400 years. The nation of Israel had been held in bondage in the land of Egypt for 400 long years painful years. And it says they cried out for help. And it says after 400 long years, God remembered his promise and God took notice of their affliction and the voice of God was heard again. Exodus chapter three, he said, I am Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I am aware of my people's sufferings and I have heard the cry of their oppression and I have come down. To do something about it. The parallel is unmistakable. What Matthew is saying about Jesus is unmissable. After 400 years of suffering and silence, not only is their prayer heard, not only is God's voice speaking again, but in this one, Jesus of Nazareth, God has come down. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. I'm at a loss to try to further describe what happened here. Beyond what it says, somehow tangibly, in that moment, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. It is an attempt, you know, to describe the indescribable. The Bible talks about the Holy Spirit at the creation of the world and that the Spirit was hovering over the churning waters. In the book of Acts, it describes the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on those first believers and it said that it looked like flames of fire dispersing and it sounded like a roaring, rushing wind. So here we're told the Holy Spirit settled upon Jesus like a dove, whatever exactly that looked like. It was an unmistakable sign that the Spirit of God was on this one. And he was the chosen and the empowered and the embodied presence of Almighty God who had come down to keep all of his promises to a bruised and to a broken people. The heavens are ripped open. Their prayers have been heard. God is once again speaking. And in this one, God has come But even with all of that, we're still left asking the basic question. Still, why was Jesus out there getting baptized? I don't get it. 
I mean, even if this was the great announcement party of God's one and only son, why would he be baptized to show it? I mean, he could have done so many other things to demonstrate that he was the anointed one. He could have performed a miracle. He could have preached a sermon. He could have unveiled some kind of a sign. He could have rent a a billboard. I mean, anything, whatever. Why wade out into the muddy waters of the Jordan and get baptized? Something that was intended for bona fide sinners who are publicly coming clean and getting right with God. Why is Jesus out there getting baptized on that day? Well, we know this much for certain. He had no need to be baptized. There was nothing that needed to be washed away, nothing to confess. There was nothing to repent of. The Bible is emphatic on this point. Now, last week, we just finished our study all the way through the book of 1 Peter, and central to the message of this book was that in all of life, even when we are suffering, central to our call is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And right at the very center of that letter, Peter wrote these words. Remember these? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That is absolutely central to our understanding of who Jesus was and what it was he came to do. He committed no sin and he had deceived no one. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 said he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says Jesus was like us in every way, tempted in all things like we are, except without sin. The simple answer to the question is that John the Baptist had it right from the very beginning. Jesus had no business being out there that day in the Jordan River at least not for himself, because he had no need. But it turns out we did have a need. He wasn't out there for himself that day. He waded out there into that river for those who had sinned. And we're talking now about people like you. We're talking now about people like me. Jesus went out in that river to give us an example. We saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, that even in the most practical parts of our spiritual life, Jesus Christ left us an example that we might follow in his steps. Is it not comforting to know that there is not one thing in your life that Jesus will call you to do that he wouldn't be willing to do himself? Like, be patient in a difficult relationship, maybe. Speak the truth when it's not popular. To do the right thing when it is not easy. Trust the Father when it doesn't make perfect sense in the moment. There is not one thing that Jesus will call you to do that he hasn't been willing to do himself. And that includes baptism. I've baptized hundreds of people over the years enough to know that taking that step isn't always easy. You end up soaking wet in front of God and the whole world, friends, neighbors, people you've never even met before. You worry about your clothes getting bunched up in awkward places, your hair going funny directions. Some people have fear of water. Some people have phobias of germs, physical limitations. People worry about what other people will think of them taking 
this step, like they've gone off the deep end on some kind of new religious kick. Surprise, maybe, that they haven't done it before. People worry whether or not they'll be good enough to live up to the commitment. What if I step out and I make this public commitment and then somebody catches me falling short sometime soon? People have hesitations about taking the step. I completely understand this. In fact, if we think about it long enough, we might start saying to ourselves, I don't really see why it's that big a deal. I, I want to live for Jesus, sincerely. I just would prefer not to do this thing. I feel absolutely confident if you take this step, it will not be the last time Jesus will call you to do something in following him that if it was left up to you, you would take a pass on. There will be some enemy that he will call you to forgive. There will be some truth that he wants you to speak up about. There will be something he wants you to give that you're not ready to let go of. There will be somewhere he calls you to go that you're not too wild about going. I don't know exactly what it'll be or when it'll first come up, but there will be more things he's going to call you to do in following him that if left up to you, you would just as soon take a pass on. So if stepping into the waters of baptism seems like a stretch for you, then I say it is a perfect symbol for following Jesus because it will not be the last time. But aren't you glad to know that Jesus will never call you to do anything, whether it is a mundane task or a mission impossible that he was not willing to do himself, and that includes baptism. When we step into the waters of baptism, we are standing in a line of believers 2,000 years long from all traditions and languages and races and cultures But we're also following along behind in the footsteps of Jesus also. But here's a second reason, which for me is even more compelling. Jesus was out there in those waters in the Jordan River to make a statement about the kind of people that he identifies with. Jesus was sinless. He had no reason to go out there into those waters. It was a place that confirmed sinners were supposed to go. But Jesus waited out there anyway to make a signal from the very beginning of his ministry that he was always going to lean in with a tender heart towards broken rebels. Time and time again in his ministry, he was going to prove more than what he said in what he did, that he was willing to be counted right alongside sinners. That's what the prophet Isaiah had promised. The Messiah would do when he came. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, he said, He poured out himself to death and he was counted with the sinners. Counted right along with them. It's pretty amazing when someone is proven to be or presumed to be guilty, how quickly people disassociate themselves. Have you ever in your life been guilty or presumed to be guilty? People have a way of evaporating from alongside you. I once stood with a man who was charged with a serious crime through his trial. There seemed to be little doubt from the beginning that he would be convicted, and he was. And the punishment was severe, and I have no quarrel with that. It it seemed to be just. But despite all of this, he asked if I would just be there and stand alongside him through his trial. And so I did. And I can tell you this, that was a lonely side of the courtroom 
sitting right behind the terribly accused. And though for legal purposes still presumed innocent, most certainly to be proven guilty. That was a lonely side of the courtroom to be sitting on. People have a way of evaporating when you're thought to be guilty. Friends don't return calls anymore. Clients take their business elsewhere. Neighbors don't seem to be out in their yards as much. Family speaks in hushed tones. When you are undeniably guilty, sometimes it can be hard to find even a single person who will still be counted openly as your friend. And yet what we discover in Jesus is that this was a way of life for him. Going out of his way to make it clear that he was willing to be openly counted with the most obviously guilty. When he met Zacchaeus, who was a lying, cheating rat of a tax collector, not only did Jesus say that there was a place in the kingdom for someone like him, but he added, today Zacchaeus, I must. Go to your house. It's not just that we must share dinner and company today, but we must do it in your house and along with your low-life friends, I suppose, because I need everyone in town to know that I am counted alongside someone just like you. When the woman was caught in the very act of adultery and she was just a stone's throw away from final justice, but then Jesus said something and all of the accusers melted away. When the dust finally cleared, where was Jesus found in that picture? He was right alongside her in the dust, right at the bullseye of justice where the sinful woman was. At that moment, she was the most scandalously guilty person in town. And at that moment, there was nowhere else that Jesus would be found other than right alongside her. Friend of sinners. That is some kind of a name for a Messiah. Isn't it amazing to know that God's perfect son not only has mercy for the sinful, But for the most sinful of people and in the most sinful of moments, he does not abandon us. The heart of Jesus is always drawn to it, always comes close to the place where broken sinners are to be found. Down on the Jordan River, who is wading out into those muddy waters for baptism? Confirmed sinners. People who are willing to openly confess their sins and turn back to God again. Who is standing watching on the banks dry and smug? religiously well-to-do, the religious power brokers who could not possibly conceive that they would have any reason to go out there. When Jesus showed up that day, where did he go? Easy. He went where he always goes, alongside broken sinners. If you have never made this decision in your life, when you wade into the waters of baptism, the first thought you will have is that you are identifying with Jesus in doing this. The truth is, in taking this step, you're recognizing the powerful truth that long before you ever knew or cared, long before we were ever reaching his direction, while we were yet sinners, already Jesus was identifying with us. If you were only going to remember one thing today, this is what I would hope it would be. Many people know that Jesus ended his mission on a cross among sinners. It is no accident 
That Jesus died between two guilty sinners. Confirmed, convicted. I would just say it's equally important to remember that Jesus began his mission in a river among sinners too. You see, from the river to the cross and to this very day and everywhere in between, Jesus came to stand alongside broken sinners. If you have never taken the step in your life to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in believer's baptism, I want to challenge you today to do that. In two weeks, we're going to be doing that. I would encourage you, I would challenge you, I would invite you to take that faith step. Not to identify with Jesus, but to profess that Jesus identifies with you. He's counted right alongside you. You can respond in different ways. You can go on, a, on the church app. You can go to our website. There are clicks there for next steps. You can just go out there to the connection counter afterwards. Say, hey, I want to talk to somebody about this. Within the next two days, someone will call you and we'll get that conversation going. I, I would encourage you to do that. It's an important faith step, recognizing that Jesus came to identify with you. Before that, if you have never put your faith in Jesus, I would encourage you to do that now. There is absolutely nothing in who you are. There is absolutely nothing in what you've done. There's absolutely nothing in your past that would possibly stand between you and Jesus. You don't have to get yourself to Jesus. Jesus has already come to where you are. There's nothing that would keep him from you. If you are a sinner who is willing to confess it and to turn to him, he's there. The minute you turn, he's there already. That's what he came to do. In fact, would you pray with me? If you've never prayed a prayer like this, you could pray it right now. You could say, Jesus, I believe in you. And I thank you that you came specifically to stand alongside people who don't measure up because that's me. I confess that I've sinned. I'm ready to turn from that sin. I ask you to forgive me, to fill me, to make me family, and I'm going to take you at your word that you will never leave me and you'll never abandon me. Save me, Jesus. Save me now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to break the silence to bridge the difference, to stand next to us, to die for us, and to come again and to receive us to himself. We thank you for that. Jesus, we thank you that you have fulfilled every promise of the Father's heart and we believe you and we follow you and we cling to you because we love you so much for being a friend of sinners. And we're talking about us. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Once again, if you've never taken that step of baptism, I hope that two weeks from today on September 26th, you will. It'll be a day in your faith journey you'll never forget. Not so much because you're identifying with Jesus, but you're testifying that Jesus came to identify with you. Let us know somehow. If nothing else, you go to that connection counter. We'll call you. And two weeks from today, we'll celebrate.